The events described in this chapter are uh, all about fear and pride getting the best out of a person, even a king. And uh, so this is a story where self tips the scale. Uh, rather than pursuing God, uh, humanity pursues self. So this is about project self gone bad. Uh, the situation is one of fortress self versus fortress faith. Uh, a life that pursues self is one that pursues uh, to build a fortress of self, to protect, to empower, to collect, to reinforce, to shine, um, to project awesomeness. And uh, it goes bad. But that's totally an appropriate thing to do uh, if true life is all about numero uno. If it's all about me, then that's a reasonable thing to do is to put all your energy into yourself. Uh, if it's all about project me, if it's all about project awesome me, then of course that's what you do. But true life and true strength isn't about me. It isn't about self. We aren't the center of life. God is life. It says in John chapter 14, 6, the answer that Jesus gave is, I am the way and I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But in so many places and so much of the time, we hear and we see a different message other than Jesus' words that he said in, in uh, John there. We see the opposite. That is, life is found in self, not in God. Truth is found in self, not in God. You can find your own way without God. Uh, but these things, they're just simply not true. Uh, that pursuit of self just leaves people exhausted and confused and lost. So in 1 Samuel chapter 13, we see how this plays out in the life of Saul, Israel's first king. King Saul was Israel's own answer to their own problem of vulnerability. They were threatened by strong enemy nations that surrounded them. And so they went to Samuel the prophet and they said, give us a king like other nations have that'll protect us from themselves. So in doing so, they rejected God as their king and the source of their true strength. And they replaced God with what they saw as strength, which with their, their lack of faith and their short-sightedness, was the very thing that caused them to feel vulnerable in the first place. A king like other nations, a king that would come against them. So God says, okay, uh, you can have a king. Here he is, Mr. Awesome, King Saul. Every inch a king, the perfect image of a king, just like other nations, just like you wanted, just like you asked for. So basically, Israel came up with their own solution for their own current state of vulnerability. And that solution was a replacement for God. King Saul instead of King Jesus. And so leaving the previous chapter for Samuel chapter 12, just a little bit of review here. We see it established that this king is subject to God. Uh, it says in chapter 25, the last verse of chapter 12, but if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. 
And so God acts and speaks and directs through the law of the priest and the prophet. And Samuel is the first of these such prophets that brings the king of kings word from his heavenly court to his earthly court. God says, okay, you're the king, but only in as much as you obey me, in as much as you follow me. God says, go for it. He says, uh, if we rewind a bit to chapter 10, when Saul was first anointed uh, by, the, by Samuel, the prophet, the spirit of God rushed upon him in Saul's hometown, a place called Gibeah, which by the way, uh, is a place where the Philistines had this outpost. Uh, Israel's major enemy had this outpost right in Saul's hometown. Saul is anointed by Samuel. You are the king. The spirit of God rushes upon him as he's enabled to be the king. And uh, this is where God gave Saul his first instructions. It says in 1 Samuel 10, 7, now, when these signs meet you, do what your hands find to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what to do. So wait for me. I'm going to offer sacrifices, and I'll give you the instructions on what to do. Do whatever your hand finds to do. It's, it's amazing that the God of the universe, the creator of everything, says, go ahead. I'm with you. Go do stuff. I'm with you. Just remember, hear my word. Follow my word. Be with me. And therefore, the king, the king that's established over Israel, he is subject to the words of the prophet because the prophet is bringing the word of God from God's heavenly court to, earth, to his earthly court. And so the king is subject to the prophet only because the prophet brings the word of God. And so are we subject to the word of God, the instructions of God, the presence of God, the directions of God. And this is a similar situation. The situation of Saul is similar to the situation of Adam. Uh, we'll read Adam and Eve. We'll read in Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps, creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful. And multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so here Saul is empowered in the same way. He's set free to be king. And he has a pretty open mandate uh, as God's instrument uh, as king. To rule, to take care of, to protect and supply for the needs of God's people and the land that he's promised them. Saul was anointed and established. He led the nation in a great victory over the Ammonites just prior to this. And Samuel said, okay, I'm stepping aside as leader. King Saul is now in charge. Here we go. What's going to happen? The Titanic has set sail. Near, far, where... 
are. Here we go. Chapter 13. Saul was, if you have uh, the ESV, I got to explain something here. Saul was blank years old when he began to reign. And he reigned blank and two years over Israel. So I have to explain this technicality now, right off the bat. Uh, the people who translated the ESV found that this verse, and it's the only verse I really know of, um, wasn't, they weren't absolutely certain to the, to the translation and the accuracy of that verse in the original source text, the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures back in the 3rd century BC, and also the Masoretic text, with, which is he, source documents, which date back uh, just after, um, in the 3rd century AD, I think. So what these 100 translators of the ESV version did was, instead of just filling in that gap, they just left that blank. And so, I don't know everything, but I know enough to say that this is beyond me to offer extra comments on that. <laughs> what I do know is Saul was the king. And this is early in his reign that these events occurred because we have the rest of the whole scripture. It says in Acts chapter 13, 21, that Saul reigned 40 years. Uh, here they just le left that blank. So they're saying Saul's the king. Here he goes. Right off the bat, early on, I don't know how many years into his reign, how long his reign was, but this is when the, these events occurred. So, moving to verse 2. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with John, Athen, and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. So where this is occurring is just north of the city of Jerusalem, in uh, these, this hill country where there's these three towns. And uh, there's some interesting things about this verse. Uh, back in chapter 11, Saul had raised an army of 300,000 men to fight and defeat the enemy on the east of Israel, the Ammonites. What does he do now? He reduces that army of 300,000 men to 3,000 men. Now, instead of Saul continuing to fight the enemies of Israel, he reduces the fighting force and he gathers all these men around himself. And you might say, like, why would he do that? Why 3,000 men? It kind of seems to me like that is more like a bodyguard than an army that is there to defend Israel and attack the different enemies that are coming against Israel. Uh, Saul is insulating himself. He's building a fortress around himself. And another interesting thing is Jonathan, his son, the crown prince, he is in Gibeah. That's where Saul was supposed to be. That's where the garrison of the Philistines are. In, in the town of Gibeah, or just outside of Gibeah, a place called Geba. That is the mandate, that is the job that Saul's supposed to be doing. Instead of doing that, he surrounds himself with a bodyguard, 2,000 of these 3,000 men, and Jonathan is where Saul is supposed to be. 
Why the fortress? Do what your hand finds to do. God is with you. Instead of that, okay, I think I'll surround myself and really take care of me right now. I'll really just uh, take care of number one. I won't be in Gibeah. I'll be 15 miles away in Michmash, safe and sound and self-protected, not aggravating or irritating the enemy. So with all this freedom, with this open mandate, Saul chooses to build a fortress of self. Until, verse 3, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. So here, we, here enters Jonathan into the story. Jonathan is one of the, the most cool characters, most... Uh, attractive characters in the whole Bible. This is a guy that had awesome faith and he went for it. And there isn't anything I can remember right now that is negative about Jonathan. He shows himself a capable military leader and he shows some faith in doing what his hands find to do, which is take out the offensive enemy position in his hometown, which Saul was supposed to do. Saul neglected his faith and chose to protect himself. Old number one, Rather than see beyond himself, he fortified himself. And Jonathan takes out this garrison in Gibeah or Geba, same thing. And uh, here he is. He kind of ruined the whole self-protective show for Saul. It's like, thanks a lot, Jonathan. But hey, Jonathan is doing the right thing. So continuing with that verse... Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines with Zadkiba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. So there's some more interesting things in there about what Saul's doing. Saul blows the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Why are you calling the children of Israel Hebrews? The last person I remember in the Bible to say the Hebrews was Pharaoh, he would call the children of Israel that were enslaved under his uh, kingdom, the Hebrews. And that was like a derogatory term that he used for these people that had crossed the great river, the Euphrates River, and moved into the land. These people were tent dwellers. They were foreigners. They weren't supposed to be there. They, were, they weren't invited. They weren't part of of this kingdom. So he'd, he would give them these derogatory, he would give them this derogatory name. He'd call them the Hebrews and everyone known, had known them as Hebrews. And so Saul, he's calling them Hebrews. He's calling them his subjects. He's looking down on these people. Just like a king would do a king from other nations. But this is not what a, a king of the nation of Israel is supposed to do. This is God's chosen instrument to bring his reign of righteousness to the world. So Saul's starting to blossom into his true self. Saul's all about Saul. He's about self-protection rather than obedience. So moving on to verse 4. Just a second here. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines... And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Here's another thing. Saul's looking, first of all, he's looking down on the people and then 
Jonathan defeats the garrison, but Saul says, da-da-da-da, I defeated the garrison. He's taking credit for what Jonathan did. You know, some people call it a pyramid scheme. I don't call it a pyramid scheme. I call it getting in on a brand new ground floor. It's like, there's some problems here. There's some problems occurring. Saul is, is all about Saul. Samuel said in chapter 10, verse 7, do whatever your hand finds to do, then meet me at Gilgal, where I will offer burnt off sacrifices and wait for instructions. So what does King Saul do? He didn't do what his hand found to do. Rather, he went and protected himself instead of protecting God's people. Someone else did that. That's Jonathan. He did what he should have done. And then Saul took credit for what Jonathan, his own son, did, which is also a self-protective strategy. Then he went, so then Saul goes to Gilgal, which is where he was supposed to meet Samuel, and he goes to offer sacrifices. So what's occurring is, Saul is going to this place of faith, Gilgal, but he's going without faith. Saul was being religious. He was building his own imaginary personal fortress. It was a show for himself or for others or for both. But we'll see uh, later how his motives leak out on him and his actions tell the tale of what really occurred. So here we are. We're going to Gilgal. Saul's taking credit for this. Saul's really not doing what he should have done, but he's coming to that place to meet Samuel. And what does that do, taking credit for all this thing? In verse 5, it says this. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash, to the east of Beth-Avon. 30,000 chariots. Here Saul is insulating himself, building this fortress of self, and what does that get him? He has 3,000 men, and now his enemy has 30,000 tanks coming against him. 10 times as many people, 10 times as many tanks as he has people coming against him. His fortress of self is not working. It's like the Canadian Olympic hockey team playing like the Congo hockey team or something. It's not working. It's like playing a game of chess and having one king and the opposition having all queens. They can do whatever they want and they're closing in on you. This is the folly of self-preservation. It's like once you commit to fortress self, then you become this target. And notice... The Philistines also moved into that place where Saul was hiding. They moved right into Michmash where Saul was building his own fortress. So they took it over. See, the life of faith is not a life of self-preservation. The life of self doesn't work. It makes us vulnerable. It is limited. The building up of self is not true strength. Faith in God is true strength. And so King Saul looked around. What did he see? He saw trouble. He saw problems. He saw opposition to big old number one. And so he tried to guard himself and protect what he had. And what did that result in? Bigger, badder problems. 
But God has called us to live by faith and not by sight, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. So now everyone is playing the old Saddam Hussein trick. They're hiding in holes, you know. They're, they've run for cover. And that's the true fortress, of, that's the true nature of the fortress of self. It's like a hole. It's like a tomb. Which is reasonable if a life dedicated to self, that's what a life dedicated to self gets. It gets self. That's the extent of it. A life of self is a terminal investment. A life of faith in God sees hope beyond the grave. Verse 7. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal and all the people followed him trembling. So the people that remained there were totally terrified and the other people, they took off east. They, like, they said, forget that. I'm going to Roberts Creek to avoid the draft. They got out of town quickly. So the situation is worsening. Fortress self is deteriorating. It's falling apart. Verse 8 and verse 9. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. If we remember back to chapter 10. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, dun, dun, dun. So this is the, this situation is really a crossroads for Saul. I just want to bring your attention to that. It's like, sure, you know, Saul was not acting out of life of faith and obedience. Sure, Saul, Saul was building his own fortress of self. But at this point, when it's, it obviously isn't working when he got himself deeper and deeper, uh, deep, I was going to say debt, but deeper and deeper in, pro- in trouble, in problems. Uh, when his efforts of self-preservation are clearly failing, the enemy is opposing Israel at massively absurd levels and his bodyguards leaving him. Things clearly aren't working. This is an opportunity for Saul. You know, maybe this is, God's design. Maybe this is the grace of God. Perhaps it was God who stripped away all these things that shouldn't have been there. And I really think this is an act of grace. This is an act of God's grace. God takes down the, war, the, fortress, the walls of the fortress, of fortress self, however they manifest, and he gives us the chance to have him build up fortress faith. A true, reliable, strong, open, eternally hopeful sanctuary. Fortress faith is like a garden. Fortress self is a prison. You don't have to continue down this road, Saul. You can remember God. This is your opportunity, Saul, to repent, to abandon the foolishness of self and embrace faith in God. So how does this turn out? Verses 8 and 9. He waited seven days, the appointed time, by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. 
So Saul said, bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. You know, it could have read something other than that. It could have waited. You know, Saul waited seven days. All the people took off, which didn't really matter because they're ridiculously outnumbered anyway. Saul clued in that he really needed God to save him because he couldn't save himself. Just like it says in Titus 3.5, he saved us not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. Samuel arrived. He presented the sacrifice like he said he would and gave Saul directions straight from the throne room of heaven. Just like the prophets of the Lord do, and Saul relied on God in faith, like it says in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith being the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. God took care of it. Saul relied on God, and there was a great victory, or whatever God had planned to do. But instead, it didn't read that. It read, it read verse 10. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering... Behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet and greet him. So the deed is done. Saul comes out. He does a little meet and greet with Samuel. You know, hey, Samuel, how's it going? Great to see you. Put her there. He does a little meet and greet with Samuel, and then it's like verse 11. Hey, Samuel. Verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done? Urch. What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw the people were gathering from me, and then you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, pious as I am. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Near, far, wherever you are, blah, 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 blah. It's like, oh, no. Sounds like something I heard before. Sounds like something I read before. In Genesis chapter 3, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Um, um, the man said, uh, the woman whom you gave to me, uh, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Hmm. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. It's like every stinking time since that time, everyone's avoiding that situation. It's like also in uh, the book of Exodus, if you can remember back, Aaron makes a golden calf while <coughs> Moses is away. And they begin to worship this golden calf. 
And then Moses comes down. He's like, what are you doing worshiping this chunk of metal? Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they're set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. And I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf, just like that. It's like, really? Really, Aaron? Why does it say, like, Aaron was here on it? (laughs) Or myself. When I was reading for this message, my mind went back to when I was six years old. I'm playing with a lamp in the living room, And I knocked it over, and it smashed. Ah! I ran out of the room. My mom came and found me. Alan, who broke the lamp? Jason broke the lamp. Really? Jason lives across the street. Jason's not here. Yeah, he just ran home. (laughs) Alan, who broke the lab? I broke the lab. Of course I broke the lab. Who do you think it was, Jason? He doesn't even live here. Why are you asking me this? To your room, Alan. You can wait for me. I'll come later. (laughs) It's like, it's our fault. It's Saul's fault. It's my fault. It's Aaron's fault. It's not Samuel's fault. It's not God's fault. It's not Jason's fault. Here's an opportunity to own up to it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What did Saul do? He didn't wait for God. Saul didn't bother to listen to God's word. Saul relied on the limits of his own sight in order to invest in the limits of his own self. This is a human predicament we all find ourselves in. So I was taking care of business. I got myself in this mess, and I'm going to get myself out of this mess. I can find my own way out. I'll provide my own sacrifice. Self-reliance, self-determination, self-sufficiency, self-help, self-determination, self-fulfillment, self-assurance. Self, self, self. I'll be my own salvation. I'll write my own self-help book. Seven steps to number one. It's like, here we are. It's the same old lie. Back to Genesis chapter three. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. There's the lie. I can really do this on my own. God's really withholding something from me. I can really be my own king. I can really take care of myself. I can really be the source, my own source of life. And I got so many options to do that. Saul exchanged eternal things for temporal things. We need God for life. Humanity's fortress of self-preservation is an illusion. It doesn't work. Jesus said, 
I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. That is the answer. Jesus is the answer. He provided himself for what we couldn't provide by ourselves. Verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. It's like, ouch. God has sought a man after his own heart. What is that? That's, a, that's someone who will obey him and love what he loves, which is Israel, which is Israel's all about bringing salvation to the world. This is the introduction to the next king, David, who will be like a type of Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus is that king. He is the one who completely and fully, totally obeyed the Father and brought salvation to us. Verse 15. And Samuel rose and went from Gilgal. The rest of the people arose and went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. So Saul is back in Gibeah where he's supposed to be, but his resources are like ridiculously depleted. 300,000 men to 3,000 men to 600 men. The best of self is radically insufficient for salvation. Verse 16. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Verse 17 and 18. And, the, and raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shul. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. So three groups. Here they are encamped right near Saul and Jonathan with his 600 guys. They got three groups. One's going north toward Ophrah where Gideon was from, by the way, another west toward Beth Horam, another east toward Zeboim. And so what's happening? The Philistines are cutting off all possible supply that would come to Saul from the rest of Israel. The enemy is isolating Saul. Saul thought that he was insulating himself, but really he was isolating himself. And in verse 19, Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. The Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords and spears. So just if that was bad enough, it gets a little bit worse. The Philistines had this monopoly of iron production, and they could make awesome weapons. And they were keeping that technology from, is, from the children of Israel. Verse 20 and 21. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks and a third of a shekel for the sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So basically, they're getting ripped off. They're under the threat of a massive military force that has awesome weapons, and they're keeping that technology from Israel. 
and they're not allowing they're not allowing Israel to have any of those weapons. They can't even sharpen their own tools. They have to go down and pay the Philistines to sharpen their tools. So they are in economic subjugation. Verse 22, on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul. And Jonathan, hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son had them. So there's two men equipped with complementary weapons versus this massive army. Verse 23, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So here they come. You got two guys with swords and spears. The rest of the guys have like mattocks and sickles and axes that they have to pay the enemy to sharpen. And they're closing in on them. They're surrounded. So much for fortress self. Israel's found itself in a corner, in a tight spot. The enemy is closing in. But King Saul's attempts to save himself, to protect himself, to give himself life, have left him in a precarious position. We can read in Romans chapter 8, 5 and 8, what Paul says about this situation. How he relates that to our life as believers in Christ. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are of the flesh cannot please God. But, verse 11, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is our lesson the life of the Spirit endures into eternity. The life of self is limited. It's a cage. Pursue God, not self. The investment in self is temporal and terminal. The investment in the Spirit, the investment of the Spirit into what Jesus has provided for us is eternal. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, 24 to 26, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So I'm just going to close with one more passage. The worship team can come up now. As I, I just want to read you an exhortation in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. So believer, so child of God, so, CTK, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, 
meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him.